Don't you love those moments in worship where you simply get caught up in the presence of God? You almost forget you're even in a church service. It's almost like you're just right there in that moment praising your Savior. Praise God for those moments. There's something that worship has the ability to do that I think sometimes a lot of the other spiritual disciplines we struggle to see that same connection. And that is sometimes worship has the ability to cut through all the stuff that's in our mind and position us faster than just about anything else. And uh, I praise God for that tonight. So as we get started, I want to set things up this evening with maybe a story or some thoughts that a lot of parents might be able to relate to. Parents, grandparents, this is for you. That is, most parents enjoy watching their kids go through different stages. And we might not always know the technical lingo for the stage that they're in. And we also might pray that our kids would get to the next stage a little bit faster. And we might be wondering if our nerves will be able to last the current stage that they're in right now. But there is some type of comfort in knowing that there's another stage coming, that there is maturity that is happening. It all begins with what I would refer to as the complete dependence stage, and that is infants pretty much can do nothing for themselves. That's where we all start. They can't feed themselves. They can't clothe themselves, protect themselves. They can't pay their own bills. They are all just cute and cuddly. You want to scoop them up. You want to squeeze their cheeks, and you just want to hope they don't throw up on the front of you. Now, you transition out of that stage into what I would refer to as the possessive defiance stage. And I don't know how this works, but somehow it's almost like it gets hardwired into their, the kid's mind two thoughts. Everything is mine, and I will not obey you. Those are basically the two thoughts that come into their mind. And when it sneaks up on you as a parent, you, you're startled by this because your little angel all of a sudden has turned in a matter of moments right there. You, you say, come here, and what do they do? They go there. You say, don't touch that. What do they do? They touch it repeatedly right in front of you. You say, bring me my keys. And, and sometimes I might say, it's mine. And they want to go the other direction. And it's really strange if they have one foot in each stage. It's like they have the cute little cuddly angel side. And then they have this possessive, defiant, demonic side. <laughs> And it's like they got one foot in each stage, and you're hoping, you're praying that the angel will stick around a little bit longer, and then the demon of depravity emerges. And about that time is when the phrase, oh, that's so cute, is replaced with, oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> and that desire to pick them up and to squeeze them, it is replaced with a desire to whoop them and to do it on repeat. You just keep doing it over and over again. It's going to be a stage that will test your sanity as well as your willingness to discipline. And then there is what I would refer to as the perpetual questions stage. And at that particular point, everything is now phrased in the form of a question. You say, God loves you, and your child might say, well, who's God? You say, God is a divine being who created everything. Why? Because creation is at the heart of God. It reveals his glory. What's glory? Well, glory is a manifestation of God's eternal character. What's eternal? 
Eternal is forever. How long is forever? Always. Like, what does that mean? It, it, forever is about as long as this conversation is taking at this point. Like, it, you just start running out of things to say. The, the perpetual question stage for your child is the moment you think back and you say, did I do the same thing to my parents? And the answer is, yes. Yes, you did. And all of a sudden, that's when the sage wisdom of your parents comes back to mind. When you ask those same ridiculous questions, here's what your parents would say, because I said so. You can get a lot of mileage out of that phrase. Your kids asking the question, well, why do I have to clean my room? Because I said so. Why can't I stay up longer? Because I said so. Why can't we have a pet kangaroo? Because I said so. It's a fantastic phrase. And you might think at one point that that's kind of like a cop-out, like you just don't want to engage. But there's actually a lot of wisdom in that one phrase. There are certain truths that your child is not able to understand, but they still have to obey. And in that moment, that one phrase, because I said so, is an important phrase. Uh, there's points where children don't have the ability to understand the intricacies of the situation or grasp all of the reasoning that is involved or see the potential for danger that maybe you see from your vantage point or the full repercussions of where this course is going to take them. And in that moment, if you tried to explain it to them, they would not understand. They don't have the mental capability to understand every part of why you do what you do. So when you say, because I said so, many times it is simply saying, I know what you do not know, I understand what you do not understand, and I am doing what's right whether you see it or not. Because I said so. Now we get into Galatians 3. The Apostle Paul has given a spiritual equivalent as we close out chapter 3. He's already shared why faith is not only better, it is the only means that God has given for justification, for people to be made right with God. Now Paul is preparing for the inevitable barrage of questions that are going to be coming back to him based upon what he's shared. And the essential truth that is going to undergird each part of what he's getting into is because God promised. In fact, if you were to go through, starting in this section, right around, say, verses 15 and following, if you were to go through and highlight every time the word promise shows up, you'll see it pops up eight different times. He keeps anchoring what he's saying back into the promises of God. He's preparing them mentally, spiritually, theologically to be able to process these things. And here's the important part about that. Not only is the argument important on a theological level, it's important on a practical level. Because every bit of what we believe about God, about creation, about salvation, about eternal life, about God's design for marriage, about God's plan for human flourishing, every bit of what we believe is based in the promises of God. If we say God's promises are not enough, there will never be anything that is enough. So he says, let's go back to what God said. 
anchor it in why it's important. It's because what God said. Now, sometimes out of grace, God will go above and beyond and give additional substance and evidence for us to anchor our faith in. But if all we have is he promised, that's enough to anchor your faith. Today, I want us to see how this argument fits into the debate over which is better, God's promises to Abraham or God's law that is given to Moses. And basically, Paul is taking us through the essentials of what it looks like for us to trust God in the deep matters of life. If we trust him in the deep stuff, you'll be able to trust him in the practical stuff. You'll be able to trust him in the daily stuff. You'll be able to trust him in the pieces that we wrestle with each day. But if we can't at least anchor those core foundational beliefs back into the promises of God, we're always going to struggle with the practical pieces. So now we get into a place where we have to begin to ask, do we trust him because we see it? Do we trust him because we feel it? Do we trust him because that's what science is now saying? Or do we trust him because God promised? I invite you to go with me in your Bibles if you're not already there. We're going to be sitting over tonight in Galatians chapter number 3, verse 15 and following. Galatians 3, 15 and following. I'm speaking tonight on the subject, because God promised. Let's read the text and go from there. Starting in verse 15, we're going to make our way down to verse 18. It says, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises, here's the first of those word promises. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify, here it is, the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask tonight that your spirit guide us in truth. May we understand deeply why it is so powerful, why it is so magnificent that we anchor our faith in your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Apostle Paul at this point, he has already proved through Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. He's proved, using the Old Testament scriptures, that Abraham was justified by faith and not by the law. He, he went on to explain that every believer, Jew or Gentile, Old Testament, New Testament, has always been, will always be justified, saved by faith. But now the Apostle Paul anticipates the next wave of arguments that are coming his way. Like, like a chess champion who is thinking six and seven moves ahead of his opponent, the Apostle Paul is preparing for how they can come back and try to argue their case back towards him. 
Now, he has already worked things out in a huge way. He has had a flawless execution of giving his first round of arguments. He has used their text, their history, their hero to prove them wrong on this particular subject. That is, proving the Judaizers wrong. From a debate perspective, it's already done. He's already He's, he's already taken it to them. He, he's already finished. He, it's completed. It, it's, there's no way to argue your way back out of it. But here's the issue. As long as there are people who reject justification by faith, there's going to be another wave of arguments trying to chip away at grace. And he's preparing for the arguments. For that person, this anchors us back into my first illustration. For the person who wants to stand in self-righteousness, for the person who wants to add anything to the finished work of Jesus on the cross, for the person who says, it is Jesus plus something is how I am saved, for that person, listen, they are not yet ready to handle that truth. So here's what Paul says. Sometimes the only thing you can say is God promised. If you're not spiritually ready to deal with self-righteousness, he's like, I could go through seven layers of argument. It's not going to matter. At this point, the first thing you need to see is because God promised. And by the way, when God's word is not enough to release the tensions in our mind, no amount of theological arguing is ever going to be enough. So he anchors it back in the truths and the promises of God. So you might say, well, how in the world would the Judaizers or anyone begin to argue that point again? Like he's, he's pretty much helped settle that debate once and for all. What could they come back with? Listen to the argument that they would come back with. They would say it like this. Abraham and his pre-Sinai descendants were saved by faith because... The law had not yet been given. Until God was finished over here, they could not be saved by the works of the law because the law was not there. Do you see how quickly that argument got turned upside down? So basically, what they're saying is the Mosaic Covenant, when it was created, it has now instituted a new means of salvation. Law replaced faith, or at least it became a necessary supplement for faith. I mean, God's covenant of the law was beautiful. Why else would God have ever given the law if he did not intend it to be a part of the saving process? It's a great question to ask. So, the Apostle Paul's complete answer to this is found in verses 15 through 22. Tonight, we're just going to be focused on verses 15 through 18. But the Apostle Paul is going to place each of these covenants side by side and help people understand the differences between the two. I believe this is in your notes. I think it's also going to be on the screen. Here's the overview that he's going to be walking people through in these verses. On one side, you would have God's covenant with Abraham, on the other side is God's covenant with Moses. If you look on the side of Abraham, the covenant with Abraham was an unconditional promise relying on God's faithfulness. The covenant with Moses was a conditional law relying on man's faithfulness. To Abraham, God said, I will. To Moses, God said, thou shalt. To 
on the promise to Abraham, it centers on God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative, God's sovereignty, God's blessing. The law given to Moses, it centers on man's duty, man's work, man's responsibility, man's behavior, and man's obedience. The Abrahamic promise was grounded in grace requiring simple faith. The Mosaic law was grounded in works demanding perfect obedience. If you just put those two side by side, you can clearly begin to see some major differences between the two. But for our time tonight, I want us to look at three traits of promise. Why are the promises that have been given to Abraham, why are they better than the promises that have been given to Moses? First of those would be God's promises are unchanging. His promises are unchanging. This is found in verses 15 and 17. Now, here's what I want you to see. The fullness of this truth is not completely revealed until we get into verses 24 and 25 when the Apostle Paul gives us why the law was actually temporary. And what he's going to tell us in that is the law was our tutor that led us to Christ. But now that Christ is here, we're no longer under the tutor. Now we have Christ. The law was temporal, but the promises of God in Christ are forever. Now, instinctively, we elevate things that are eternal over things that are temporal. Like, for example, if you talk about it from a spiritual perspective, a Christian worldview perspective, we would say it's better to store up treasures in heaven than it is on earth. That's biblical, amen? There you go. All right. There's seven or eight of you that got that. All right. So now if you keep going, we, we look at what is eternal and we say that has greater value. That should have greater significance. What, what I do in this life, it's important, but what we do in this life impacts what happens in the next life. The Apostle Paul has taken that same basic idea over here and he holds a similar conviction describing the unchanging promises, the eternal promises of God. Listen to how he says it here. He says, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. What I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. So here's basically what he's doing. He says, I'm going to give you a great example, marriage. Suppose you're married. You've now entered into this covenant relationship of marriage. It's, it's in human relations. And you made a vow before God and before witnesses to forsake all others so long as you both shall live. And one month after you get married, your spouse brings their date home for dinner. And it's not you. And they say to you, I know the vow that I have made, but I've changed my mind on that. I'm going to not forsake all others. I would like for you to meet so-and-so. Now, after you help them pick their teeth up off the ground because you accidentally punch them in the face, you would come back and say, no, it is not okay. You might have changed your mind, but that does not change the covenant. 
That doesn't change the fact that this is a covenant relationship made between, uh, between God and between each other. So basically the apostle Paul is going back to that human covenant and he's saying if a human covenant itself is supposed to be irrevocable and unchangeable, how much more do you think a divine covenant is to be irrevocable and unchangeable? This Greek word for covenant means binding agreement. When God made the covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 15, he walked through, if you'll remember, he walked through the animal parts alone signifying that he was responsible for keeping the covenant. It was referred to as a unilateral covenant of promise. Listen to this. Abraham did not make a covenant with God. God made a covenant with Abraham. When a covenant is ratified, if you'll remember, Abraham was asleep. I mean, that covenant was so not dependent upon Abraham, he did not even have to be awake when it happened. God's saying, I take full responsibility for what's happening right here. So let this truth marinate for just a moment in your mind. When God gives us a promise through his word, it is not invalidated by time. It may not come when you think. It may not come how you think. But it will come. God never promises anything that he will not produce. God promised Abraham the land, the seed, and the blessing. It did not come as Abraham thought. It did not come when Abraham thought. But it came. Time does not detract from the promises of God. Time, listen to this, provides the context of God's intended glory to be revealed. Did you know there is something beautiful for the saints of God, hard for the saint who's walking through it, when that individual is willing to trust God for long periods of time without seeing the promise in their life? Do you know why? Because we all have things that we've been trusting God for, waiting for God to do. And you look out at this cloud of witnesses and you say, if that person walked that long with that burden, trusting God, I can walk a little bit further from here. But if you don't know that, if you don't hear those stories, there, there's something in us that we're like, well, what's wrong with me? Like, why is God not answering this for me? Like, God, I need this right now in my life. But there's something beautiful about recognizing how God has walked his people through this over the course of time. And listen, when it comes, there's almost something overly spectacular about the fact that God keeps his promises. Sometimes it's not even in our lifetime, but he still keeps his promises. Here's the next truth. God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. Here's another way of saying that. When you get to the end of the promise, you get Jesus. It's fulfilled in Christ. On the other end is Christ. The, the fullness of this is coming into Christ. So it says in verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. 
Now, the rabbis of that time, they were fond of using and building arguments based on one single word. And basically, the Apostle Paul is giving one of those types of arguments. He says, I want to draw your attention to one word. And that is, it's not seeds, plural, it is seed one. And that is, the seed is Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul argues that this seed, in a singular way, helps us to understand the length of time in which it took to go from the promise to Christ. Christ being the fulfillment. That is, as the law comes through, the law was our tutor that is leading us over to Christ. The simplicity of this is, if the promise is to be fulfilled in Christ, then until Christ comes, it could not yet have been fulfilled. So he's, he's saying, don't, don't miss the simplicity of the fact this is coming back to one. This is coming back to Christ. Now, this is not the first time that the word seed has been used to refer to Jesus. All the way back over Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God said to Adam, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That is one of those Old Testament, long ago, uh, I guess, promises, predictions, prophecies about who Christ would be. So here's the question. If the seed is Christ, if he is the fulfillment of the promises, ask it like this. Which do you want more? Jesus or law? Jesus. Now, in case you happen to be teetering on the edge, he's like, I'm not sure, Paul. Help me work through this. Let me, let's put some of this side by side. Who brought salvation to your soul, peace to your heart, and help in times of need? Who entrusted you with the riches of heaven and gave you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Who's the one who took your old sin nature and nailed it to the cross and gave you a new nature in Christ? Who is the one who clothed you in righteousness? Who took your place on the cross? Who redeemed you from the slave market of sin, giving his life as a ransom for you? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. The promises given to Abraham are greater because they're fulfilled in Christ. Number three, amen, number three. God's promises are based on God's perfection and not our performance. Praise the Lord that it is not based on our performance. It says in verse 18, for if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Now, we've already touched on this just a little bit under the first point, but let's, let's pull this idea out some in verse number 18. For if the inheritance is based on law. Okay, the inheritance is the blessing, the, the fulfillment of the promise. He's saying if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. In other words, if you try to superimpose the law on top of promise, it's no longer just the promise because you don't earn an inheritance, you receive an inheritance. The moment you start working for it, it's no longer that inheritance. God promised Abraham 
not the other way around. When we're saved, it's not because, because we acted for God. It is because Christ has acted for us. Now, our salvation is either going to be about us or it's going to be about God. And he's saying, if you're making it about works, it's no longer going to be based on a promise. And if you make it about works, it's going to be based on your performance. But if you make it about Christ, it is about the promise, and it's going to be based on his performance. Sometimes you just got to pull back and say, God, help me in this moment not to try to add something because I can't figure it out, but sometimes, God, just accept what it is that your word is saying. It doesn't matter how long you are walking with Jesus. There are truths that come back to works-based righteousness that you have to go back and revisit again and again and again and again. In fact, the Bible speaks of some of this over in Romans as reckoning truths. There are certain truths you just got to reckon upon. You just got to take as it is true. It is God's word. It is promised. So he says, for if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Did you, did you see what just happened in the second part of that verse? God has granted it. God is the one taking the action on our behalf. To show you how deep that goes, that term granted, it means give graciously and permanently. He has graciously and permanently granted this promise on our behalf. How do we gain the inheritance that we see in this passage? One word, grace. We are saved by grace through faith. It is the unmerited favor of God. There are times that we can not only go through the motions of Christianity so much that we lose sight of the wonders of grace, but there are times on a personal level when you're sitting alone with God and there's these, I don't know if you call them fleshly thoughts, thoughts from the enemy, where it's almost like I'm doing really well right now. God, we make a great team. God, this is, this is working out well. And then all of a sudden, you're reminded again of the fact that there's absolutely nothing that we did that has endeared us to God. Grace is either unmerited or it is not grace. And when you recognize it's not because we had a set of gifts that God was like, oh, if I could get those gifts in the kingdom, we could really do something then. It's, it's not that there was some type of righteousness that we brought to the table. It, it's solely the fact that God in his sovereignty, God in his grace, God in his mercy, God in the unfathomable riches of his character, has chosen to reach down and to take sin-stained people who were in rebellion against their creator and say, I'm going to change them, not because they deserve it, but because I'm that good. 
And the moment you start to let your eyes come up and say, ah, I'm doing great at this. I've got something. It's almost like God has to remind you, no, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. It needs to be, it needs to be that every time anything amazing happens in our life, the first thought that should go off in our mind is, thank you, Jesus, that's because of you. It's not, look at me, it's all about you in in my flesh, in my weakness. I, I brought nothing to the table. Oh, but when you think of what God has done on our behalf, it is his unmerited favor. Did we earn it? No. Did we work for it? No. Do we deserve it? No. Did we figure God out? Oh, no. Was God impressed with our spirituality? No. Was it based on our good works? No. How did we get it? It's grace. How long can we keep it? Forever. Where did it come from? It's Jesus. He's better. Jesus is better. That's what he's saying. If you look back between the covenants here, if you put them side by side, if you imagine what he has done for you, there is nothing that should come out other than unbelievable humility and praise for what God has done for you. Jesus is better. God's promises are unchanging. His promises are fulfilled in Christ. His promises are based on God's perfection, not our performance. And if none of those are good enough and you say, I still don't understand, Paul would say, just hold on to it because God promised. Listen, man cannot succeed in perfectly keeping the law. And God cannot fail in perfectly keeping his promise. What a beautiful place for us to rest in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, God, help us to be gospel-centered believers, overwhelmed day by day, day by day, moment by moment, God, overwhelmed by the grace that has been poured out for us. God, I am praying tonight as we close out this service that you would be spiritually preparing each of our hearts. And Lord, I'm asking tonight, God, I'm asking that you would remind me of these things over and over again. Lord, we have so much to be grateful for, so much to be thankful for. God, may our praise never be hindered when we recognize how great and how wonderful you are. We love you tonight and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.